Our first reading today comes from the book of Matthew, and I'm reading from chapter 13, verses 1 to 23, better followed on the screen behind me or in your leaflet. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered round him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil, and it spread up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they have not, do not hear or understand. In them is the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone 
who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the words, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And we continue with Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? When, where then did the seed weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling up the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters. First collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring, them in, bring it into my barn. He then told another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his feed, field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds may come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through all the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain, us, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seeds stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned into the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and who do evil. They will throw them into the burning fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of, the, of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, 
and then in his joy went out and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like the net that was thrown down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up onto the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw away the bad. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understand all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. Well, uh, thank you very much for having me again uh, with you uh, on this long weekend. Today we're uh, diving a little further into uh, Matthew. Uh, Last week, you might remember, we did Matthew 10, if you were here, and we drew a few little nuggets out of that. Um, The power of mission is to realise that you're sent ones, uh, that you, your, your mission in life is fused to Jesus' mission, and that's how he sees us operating in the world. We saw um, the inherent dangers of mission, worrying over provision, uh, the prospect of hostility, and even the ruptured relationships from those who are closest to us, even those under our roof. And then we also felt the love that motivates mission, And uh, that came out in our infinite value as sent ones going out into the world, according to the Father. uh, He he also demands of us that we love him above everyone else or anyone else. And we also saw the love that pumps the heart of a mission that sees people as being lost, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And we finish with a question hanging in the air. What are you into? Are you into vision or are you into, um, are you into provision? Do you want Jesus to lead you through your life or do you want him to feed you? Um, they're hard questions to answer, but it's part of being on mission with him. We do it as a church, but you'll do it this week when you go off and scatter into the world. In Matthew 13, Jesus uses picture language, as Kerry said, um, to explain the nature of the kingdom of God. And in effect, what he's giving us is these snapshots or slides or images of what being on mission is like. And they're everyday experiences. You know, there's sowing seed, there's baking bread, there's catching fish. It's all very realistic. It's amazing to realise the impact, though, that, those pitch, that, that pictures generally can have on us. Have a look at these pictures. So you may, uh, you, you may instantly be taken and transported to the time and place of those images, or perhaps a more recent one that we've seen over the last few weeks, um, that uh, we feel for these people who currently are on the move, uh, and the other one, I think, that we've got there with us, of people trying to get on the trains. See, those pictures, they don't need words to accompany them. They are seared on our retina as we see them, and we associate a whole range of feelings and effects and responses to them. Now, chapter 13 brings the first half of Matthew's gospel to a close. It's 
the third great teaching block uh, that Matthew assembles for us, and it represents a real gear shift in the way Jesus teaches people. Location-wise, Jesus moves away from the synagogue now and he's out in the open, in the fields. He shifts from plain speech to parables and his audience shifts to the common crowd. And as Jesus turns away from Galilee, where he has been, and starts moving towards Jerusalem, which also means his death, that's the hinge on which Matthew's gospel is turning at this point where we're opening. So let's look at it really closely to see what these images are about. And the first is of a farmer who takes a supply of grain in a bag and with a great sweeping rhythm, he scatters it um, through the paddocks. And in fact, given that time of the year that Jesus was preaching, it's most likely that as they picked their way down through the fields towards the shore, they would have seen people doing this activity. The sower is not concerned that seed falls on the boundary path or in the shallow soil or where the thorny perennial weeds are lodging that will come up when there's more rain. The expectation is that there will be a small return, um, perhaps 10%. But the sower just sows the seed in a sort of a broad uh, sweeping motion and generous hoping for the best. Jesus' story leaves people with four pictures in their head. Seed snatched on the hard ground, seed withered in the shallow soil, seed choked by the competition, and seed that grows as it was intended to, to produce fruit. Now, at this point, he concludes the story. He who has ears, let him hear. At this point, it's a pretty abrupt conclusion, and the teaching time is over. What we've come to know as the explanation to this story is actually separated. And the disciples go up to, to Jesus, the, not the crowds, but the disciples go up, and they say, you know, what's this about that you're talking about here? For the crowds, they're happy to just have the story. And it's not until his followers prod him that you get the question, why do you teach in parables, Jesus? And then Jesus gives the explanation to the images he's put in people's heads. Here's a question. Why do you think Jesus taught in parables? Because about one third of what he said came in this form. In fact, Jesus and his parables are inseparable. If you don't understand the parables, you will not understand the nature of Jesus and who he is. Jesus' parables are not playful illustrations. They're not the equivalent of a sermon illustration to keep you, you know, sort of entertained and hooked. In the end, this man who goes about telling parables gets himself spiked on a cross. These parables are dangerous, downright dangerous. They have a disturbing quality to them. Look at Jesus' answer to their question in verse 13. This is why I speak to the crowds in parables. Those seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear. Or understand. Why do I speak in parables? Simple answer. To sort out the listeners. 
You see, those outside, all they'll ever get is a good story. But to those who are hungry and those who are looking, the parables actually reveal the truth about God. They're an instrument of revelation. And the person who leans forward, they get more and more. And the person who stonewalls, even what they have is taken away. The parables create more light for those who are peering intently. And the darkness only intensifies for those who don't. They're the great sifting tool of Jesus. They're the sieve, if you like. And at this point, they're distinguishing genuine interest from novelty interest in Jesus. Jesus quotes with irony the damning condemnation issued by Isaiah to the people of his day. In verse 14, he says, You will be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving, For this people's heart is calloused, they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. You can be listening, you can be as deaf as a post. Ask many wives. (laughs) You can be looking, but in reality, you have your eyes closed. This is a really disturbing picture because it's saying people voluntarily disable their, their faculties when it comes to the spiritual realm of life. Jesus' parables sought out the casually interested from those hungry for life's answers. And Jesus invites and he motivates his disciples to really wrestle further with these images he paints. He says, and blessed are your eyes because they do see and your ears because they're hearing. So parables are like a culling process in Jesus' popularity. The mystery of mission is that it effectively polarises people by their response. As Jesus explains now the meaning of the parable, he says in verse 18, mission happens whenever a sower and a seed get together. God's word germinates when uh, the soil receives the word. One message, and it produces different results in different people as it goes out. And in each case, the sower's the same, the seed's the same. Guess what the only difference is? The soil. Now, I am a gardener, and I'm just giving you a rider here. I'm not trying to sort of push my barrows on you here, but this part of Matthew's gospel is good for a gardener to be speaking to you about. Okay? So you'll hear a few uh, stories from me, but honestly, I'm not pushing them in. I'm not shoehorning them into the sermon today. They actually work for what we're looking at here. So as a keen gardener, you know what I'm often asked? Oh, um, what will, what, how, how can I get that plant to grow? And I can tell you from bitter experience, heartbreaking work, I've learned every time the answer is the soil. Get the soil right and it will be a fantastic experience. If not, it will be heartbreaking for you. The key to growing lay in the soil. And there are four responses, and they're all dependent on the soil conditions, he says. Hard, shallow, superficial, fruitful. The fourth soil wins a gardener's heart. There are many things to learn about mission from this portrait, but the most significant thing is this. As you and I go about our lives, we must be in the business of sowing. And like Jesus, be prepared to just... Scatter that seed indiscriminately where we go. For unlike Jesus, we actually don't know what the 
soil type is of people's hearts. Mission will attract a varied response in the lives of those that we share the gospel with. Some become hardened, other people make a shallow response, some people make you know, progress and then they go backwards and the things around them choke the life out of them of what they initially saw. And some, some people seem to change soils before your very eyes over time. That's what happened to Jesus and we must be prepared for that happening as we engage in mission. You know what I find? Sometimes when I get to the stage where someone's prepared to read the Bible, I think, oh, I don't know whether I want to do this because I know it will mean they, they see more and I know it will push the envelope in terms of their response as soil. But Jesus promises that sowing does yield a bumper crop. The gospel will achieve what, God's, what God wants. It grows in people. And you yourselves are living proof of that here today. The remaining pictures I've sort of clustered around according to what Jesus is trying to emphasise. So um, we're going to have a look at the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed and an infectious yeast together. Um, The emphasis in both of them is on small beginnings, um, but then a great impact. You know, the year we bought our first home as a couple, we were strapped for cash. I wanted a garden, so what I did was I made it out of packets of seeds. And it was phenomenal to watch these tiny specks grow into an absolutely stunning display. In fact, the following year, our neighbour turned over his soil because it was a vacant block. And um, that, that's a picture of uh, what happened. But um, the next year... Because the neighbour had, you know, upended all his block. All the poppies from our place, all the seeds blew over to his. And he had to sort of, it, it looked beautiful, but it was a nightmare for him trying to do work around his building site the following year. The seeds are just amazing what they can do. And Jesus says, what starts as a tiny speck eventually supports a vast array of life. So much potential is programmed into that little packet of seeds. Or look at the effect when you add uh, yeast to a batch of dough. It begins to grow and balloon. You know, I I tried many years ago to make hot cross buns. I thought, I'm going to do this one Easter. I'm going to have a go. So I got the recipe out. I was uh, putting it together and... It called for an amount of yeast to go into the dough at a certain point, and I saw where it was, and I thought, oh, it can't possibly. <laughs> so I f- put two in. See how we go with that. Then it said, put it in a warm and sunny place to watch it grow. So I put it in the back of my Datsun 180B on the parcel rack. <laughs> I came back, and it was like a monster. I had to get a spatula, I had to scrape it out. It was huge. (laughs) See, you only needed a small amount. And Jesus says his kingdom will start small, but with absolute certainty. Like the yeast going into a dough, it'll get bigger. It will. It will grow. Jesus says his kingdom will grow so much it will overtake other kingdoms. 
Why must Jesus' kingdom be so insignificant at the start? Have you ever thought that? Wrongly, I think, or maybe because of our culture, we're looking for instant success a lot in life. And we do it with our Christian faith as well and with church. We want it to start with a splash and we want it to get even bigger. And there's some good motivation to that, but there's also a lot of culture that we're taking on board. The great challenge, I think, for Christians in the West is that our history is one of launching from a platform of security and a platform of strength and size and experience. When Christendom moved to Asia and Africa and the Americas in the 17th to the 20th century, it came with a bucket load of culture, you know, great technology at the time, great economic grunt, and a position of superiority in many ways. I'm not saying that the missionaries who took uh, that didn't have a heart for people and want to see them come to know Jesus. But it was an era of glory, a mission from empire. And it also meant that those on the receiving end found it very, very difficult to sort of work out what was the gospel and what was coming to them from a culture that was more advanced at the time. The package, the contents, it's hard to see the two the difference between the two. And we can approach mission from a position of dominance, you know, where we say, well, we're successful, we've got good programs, we know what we're doing, we'll come in and uh, we'll tell you how to handle it. Again, listen to the podcast uh, on the Heart of Mission, the second one uh, from CMS that they released in the last few weeks because it talks more about this even playing field if we're trying to reach people. And I think we... Don't just do that across cultures. We need to do that with the people around us so that they don't feel like they're the ones put into a position all the time where um, they have to make all the adjustments to understand uh, what Christianity is. They have to come onto our turf. We're the ones in a position of superiority or power. What Jesus is telling us here is that mission can be a, a mission of infiltration, of a minority infecting a majority, you know, like a pandemic, I suppose, but in a good way. Despite its humble beginnings, mission will bring phenomenal growth. And anyone who works with seeds has to learn to be patient. Have you ever tried this with kids? You know, you plant the seeds and five minutes later, they want to go back to see whether they've come up yet. Yeah, no, we need to give it a bit more time, kids, you know. Um, from one man, Jesus Christ springs up a faith that travels the whole globe. Think for a moment of all the potential gathered in a family who sits around a table at night after dinner and prays. Think of the potential of a prayer group meeting with a passion for evangelising their workmates in an office or in a workplace. Think of a church with a burden to reach people in different parts of the world. You know, Dubai or South Africa or uh, even at Flinders Uni, which I understand are your mission partners. It all has to start with one little small seed. <clears throat> now, the picture of the treasure and the pearl I've put together, because it moves us from the mission's, mission's effects back to its intrinsic value again. 
Jesus envisages an incredibly positive response to his kingdom. You meet a person here who's tickled pink to receive it. And in the first image, someone discovers a treasure in a field by accident. And this was a lot more common than we take, we understand in our culture. Because they didn't have, you know, safety deposit boxes and super funds to put it into and, and um, you know, banks and stuff like that. So often the safest place if you were going on a trip was to just bury things in the ground and come back and get them later. And the problem came when you didn't return from your trip. And so people would come across treasure. And they say that possession is nine-tenths of the law, and in those days that was certainly the case. And people found things like this. So Jesus draws on something that people would understand. And then the second portrait of the pearl fancier who knew perfection when he saw it. You know, although there were other pearls out there, he came across, and excuse the dad joke here, but he came across the mother of all pearls at this point. Nothing compares to it. He's absolutely besotted with acquiring it, even if it costs him everything. Now, for some people, when it comes to the kingdom of God and their response to it, it's like accidentally bumping into a lottery ticket that wins. And for other people, it's the end of a long, arduous search. Where they tried it, no, it didn't work. Tried it, didn't work. But whether by chance or by arduous effort... When you come across the person of Jesus, he is pure treasure. And you simply have to have that pearl. I hope you feel the delight here in the possession of Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus, uh, what he's saying here is true? that he is the greatest treasure in the whole wide world, as um, Colin says. The bewitching pearl of infinite value. So much so, you'd mortgage everything to the hilt to have him. It's really a summary of this. these two parables is probably, you know, uh, finders, keepers, losers, weepers. Now, if you're new to gardening, I can tell you one of the cruelest ironies in this world is that weeds have the incredible knack of masquerading as something worthwhile. Um, Several years ago now, I coddled and I nurtured what I thought was going to be a magnificent display of Flanders poppies, and I fertilised them, I was careful and, you know, weeded around them and only to watch them produce the most most disappointing excuse for a bloom that I've ever seen. And weeds are just like that. And Jesus now picks up this picture of the weeds growing up with the wheat. And another picture, which is very similar to it, the trawler's dragnet. Jesus talks of the worthless and the valuable sharing the same space. And Jesus' kingdom coexists in this world with uh, with, with things that are in, directly, in direct opposition to his kingdom. And they're allowed to share the same space and in, intermingle. It's difficult uh, at points to tell them apart. But there is a logical progression to this world, just as there is a logical progression to harvest, as there is to a fisherman who eventually sorts his catch 
So wheat, weeds, good fish, bad fish, sheep, goats, call it what you want, but mission anticipates a sorting. You know, a final division into two groups, those in the kingdom, those who aren't in the kingdom. Now, there are lots of divisions in this world that we make to sort ourselves out and work out where we fit. Um, we had one this morning, um, you know, Crow's Power, so Labor Liberal, that'll be coming up next weekend, or, or, or others. Um, progressive, Conservative, Hills, Plains, uh, Western culture, Eastern culture, city, country, first world, developing world, um, democracies, autocracies, that's been big, isn't it? But this division that Jesus is talking about here, that's the only division that matters in the end. God will make his final sword and he'll separate what is now allowed to mingle. And as sure as harvest... Uh, follows sowing as sorting the catch follows fishing. So do you believe that? Do you believe what Jesus is saying here when it comes to people that you're now sharing the same space with in this world? The reality of judgment, it's, it's cause for mission. For Jesus leaves us in no doubt as to the final state of the lost. The destination of some people should distress us. Now, we think the parables make things easier to understand, but Jesus is telling us they actually create more confusion. Um, we think people have full possession of their faculties to understand things, but the Bible keeps telling us when it comes to apprehending the things of the kingdom, their senses are seriously impaired. We think the response to sowing is, you know, it's either going to be positive or negative, but actually Jesus is... There's a whole spectrum of response. We want to be part of an instant kingdom of success, and Jesus says, no, it's more likely insignificant at first, but there's no doubt eventually there will be no stopping of it. We live like there is no harvest coming without an urgency for the lost. And we divide people into all sorts of groups of our own invention. Jesus implores us, to see only one division that matters that's inevitable, irreversible, permanent. We think that Jesus is a great wardrobe accessory to life and these portraits say he's the most valuable thing that you'll ever have. You'd sell everything else in your wardrobe to have him. Jesus asks his disciples in verse 51, do you understand these things? Do you understand these things? It's a great question for us as well, for any disciple who wants to be part of God's mission. Pictures convey a thousand words. These images of the kingdom, they evoke a really strong reaction when Jesus gives them and as we read them and as others we know read them and they will shape the face of mission. Which of these mission portraits best illustrate your mission to the people around you? Which images might best fit the present situations of the people that you work with and share space with? And which pictures 
would best capture the attention of your friends or intrigue them or puzzle them. When Jesus entered our world, he kick-started a process. The field is no longer fallow. The mustard seed is growing, friends. The dough is rising. The net is being pulled to shore. The harvest is coming. He who has ears, then please hear. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand why you taught in parables. Help us to see their function and their design in our mission. Help us to build a more comprehensive picture of the effects and the response to your mission in this world and help us, each one of us, to better connect these images with the people to whom we're engaged in mission. Amen.